Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, April 27th, 2020. Today we have two great podcasts. The first is titled The Ethics of Fertility Treatments During Corona. In this podcast, I speak with Dr. Alan Copperman, who is the Director of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Mount Sinai and the co-director of RMA of New York, one of the largest infertility centers in the country. We discussed the decision made by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine to suspend all infertility treatments during the coronavirus pandemic. We talk about the logistics of that decision, and more importantly, the ethics behind suspending reproductive treatments for women with infertility. It's a complicated and fascinating topic, and I think you will find it very interesting. In the second podcast, I speak with one of my partners at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates, Dr. Michelle Santoyo. We talk about her relationship with her patients, her love of New York City, her passion for exercise, and why she prefers her patients call her Michelle. Hence, the title of the podcast, Call Me Michelle. On Thursday, Michelle and I will be talking about Am I in Labor? We talk about what happens when a woman goes into labor and how Hollywood always gets it wrong. If you are new to the Health of Woman podcast, we only started a few weeks ago, and there's definitely time to catch up. Finally, I wanted to mention that today is the Jewish anniversary, or Yortzeit, of my father-in-law, Dr. Saul G. Agus of Blessed Memory. Dad, as I knew him, or Dr. Agus, as his patients knew him, was the best doctor I've ever known and remains one of my true inspirations in medicine and in life. Everyone adored and respected him. And for the record, he would have gotten such a kick out of the fact that I have a podcast. Dad, your patients miss you and your family misses you. It just is not the same without you. Have a great day, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're here with Dr. Alan Copperman, professor and vice chairman of obstetrics and gynecology at Mount Sinai. He's the director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, and he's the co-director of RMA of New York, Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. Alan, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thank you for having me. First of all, how are you doing? How's your family? We're trying to stay safe. We turned our home into a virtual campus and we're all learning to fight for bandwidth on Zoom and we're having family dinner. So I'm going to say we're making the best of this, of a tough situation for all. You just described my home exactly. So it's the exact same situation, fighting for bandwidth. For listeners who might not know, explain a little bit about reproductive endocrinology and infertility or REI, exactly what do you do? So I was trained as an obstetrician gynecologist and then specialized in reproductive medicine. Uh, a lot of the reproductive endocrinology, like hormone problems and menopause and thyroid and prolactin are the background. But I think that our field has transitioned over the last couple of years. And a lot of what we do is manage fertility. So that's fertility preservation for somebody not ready to conceive. And that's treating infertility for a patient who is trying to conceive. Sometimes it's with conversations, sometimes treating with hormones, sometimes surgery, and a lot of the times these days going even to the high-tech world of in vitro fertilization. Right. So most people, I think, would understand why they would need to see a specialist for infertility or subfertility or anything preserving fertility. But what are the reasons that you mentioned before that someone would see a reproductive endocrinologist just for the endocrinology part? 
There's a lot of reproductive disorders that we find challenging, polycystic ovaries, premature menopause, endometriosis. So I think that any woman who uh, goes to her gynecologist and has conversations and is looking for a specialty, we're usually the next stop on that way to reproductive health. And then in terms of your own practice, as you said, the majority of it is related to fertility. What percent would you say of your practice's volume is related specifically to fertility? I'd say almost 100% these days is managing people's fertility journey. It used to be treating infertility, and now a lot of it is preventing infertility. 35-year-old woman that wants to someday build a family but isn't yet ready very commonly comes in for what we call a reproductive checkup, where we take a history, where we do an ultrasound to look at her ovaries, where we check some basic hormones, and we figure out what her reproductive options are, what her reproductive capability is, and we're seeing egg freezing as an option for these patients. The other percentage of women are actually already begun to try to get pregnant and are struggling. And for those, we do the evaluation, which can include an assessment of eggs and sperm and uterus and tubes, and we can then target some treatments. But most of what we do now is really reproductive management. Got it. And now RMA of New York is one of the largest infertility centers in New York or even the country. What is your clinical volume like? Well, we started RMA of New York as Mount Sinai's IVF program back in 2001 in June. And we were only about 300 cycles of IVF and four physicians. And now we're more than 3,000 cycles of IVF and 14 physicians in seven locations. So we've grown because we're paying a lot of attention to local care while keeping centralized some of the precise, highly technical laboratory functions of an in vitro fertilization laboratory. So we've gotten pretty busy over the years, but we're amazed at how much technical progress in science has shortened the amount of time that any individual patient is in our office. It used to take almost a year for the average patient to get pregnant. And now within four months, the majority of patients are seen by us, diagnosed, treated, and back to their obstetrician. When you say 3,000 cycles, that's per year? Yeah, 3,000 egg retrievals per year, more or less. Got it. And that's how a lot of centers will sort of quantify their volume by egg retrievals? It's like a standardized way to do that? Yeah, there's about 250,000 egg retrievals done in the United States each year. And in fact, 2.5% of the babies born in New York last year was from IVF. So we're seeing fertility treatments more and more commonly being used to manage a variety of disorders. And we've been fortunate by just taking good care of patients and having good success rates and being here in New York to have been able to take care of more patients than I think the majority of centers. The average center probably does a couple of hundred egg retrievals in a year, and only a small subset is in the thousands. And then, so you said you're over seven sites and 14 physicians. What's your total staff volume like? It must be very large. 14 embryologists, and we have andrologists, technicians, nursing teams. Each patient has a IVF coordinator, a registered nurse, and a financial coordinator help them navigate their journey. So we surround patients with a team, with a community, with a cheering squad, and with specialized people to help them through the process. And what I think a lot of people might not realize about RMA of New York and other infertility centers, and you alluded to before, that number one, obviously, there's the expertise of the physicians, and number two, there's the entire staff and support team that you surround the patient with. But the facilities are critical in terms of that. It's not just facilities like, oh, we have a nice office, but in terms of 
the technology that you need to run an embryology lab is uh, astounding. Yeah, so I think you're getting at the concept of a clean room. You could take eggs and sperm out and put them on a counter and create an embryo. But unfortunately, the, these embryos are so susceptible to environmental toxins, to volatile organic compounds, to particulate insults, to bacteria and fungus, that it wouldn't survive for very long. But in the perfect environment with filtered air, with the right culture conditions, with tested protein supplements, with the, with the right pH and carbon dioxide concentrations, you can keep an embryo growing for a week. You can keep the embryo growing, genetically test the embryo, freeze and thaw the embryo, and have incredibly high success rates. So setting up that laboratory is probably one of the most crucial parts of building an IVF center. Yeah, I remember when I was a resident in training, so this was, I was my third year, so 2003, give or take. And all of us at Mount Sinai, as part of our training, we did a rotation in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And that mostly meant going to your office and seeing patients with you. And it was shortly after you open your office on uh, in Midtown uh, in Madison. And I remember getting the tour and I was blown away by how much space you needed and how much equipment you needed and how many people you needed to supervise the equipment and all the backups you needed and you know in terms of generators and filters and whatnot it's quite an operation uh, in order to do this it's not just you know open up a you know put up hang up a shingle and start doing fertility treatments yeah it's very equipment in intensive and we have a lot of redundancies built into the system as you as you're suggesting we have a backup generator just in case there's a power outage we have backup liquid nitrogen tanks to keep the uh, embryos frozen in case there's a delay in delivery. There's alarms, there's backup incubators, there's redundancy of personnel in case somebody is not well one day. When the eggs and sperm are ready, they're ready and you need the whole team, you need all the equipment, you need all the precision ready to take care of them. So take me to about four to six weeks ago, you're running Army of New York, you have hundreds of patients coming in every day, you're doing thousands of cycles a year, you have this seven sites, this terrific large you know, group of people helping to care for them and then corona hits. What happened to your practice in terms of day-to-day -day operations? We saw this coming a little bit. We followed the press from Southeast Asia. We followed the medical journals, what was happening in Italy and Spain. And still there was a little sense of denial, I think, even those of us in healthcare. We began to get ready. And then one day ASRM came out with their guidance saying, Everybody shut down, brace for the storm. And there was a sense of disbelief that our whole reproductive community and thousands of us just couldn't believe in a moment that we had to stop taking care of patients. And uh, we did, though. We completed the cycles of those that were in series. We started to work with our local healthcare systems, making sure that we had any personal protective equipment that was available, that there was any resources that could be used by the healthcare community that we began to deploy. I know our fellows ended up helping out on the labor floor and using their skills. So we began to act as a community to make sure that we met this surge in critical care needs and supporting our local personnel. And that meant taking a pause on almost all fertility treatment been a really tough, complicated last six weeks where instead of worrying about the individual, we really placed a focus on society. So I definitely want to get into all of that in detail. But just to start, as, as far as we know, does the coronavirus or infection with the coronavirus affect fertility? We know that COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus very similar to SARS and MERS. And we've got a decent amount of data over the last 18 years suggesting that neither one really 
affected eggs, sperm, or embryos. And aside from patients that had severe fevers in the first trimester, did not seem to have a really real significant impact, if any, on pregnancy outcome. So the assumption right now is that COVID-19 is a horrible virus. It's novel in that it that people walk around asymptomatic, shedding the disease long before they get sick. And when they get sick, especially if they have a comorbidity, that their decline is precipitous. But what we're understanding is that it doesn't appear to have a real effect on the reproductive system. In fact, ACOG has uh, not suggested that people abstain from trying to get pregnant. You remember during Zika just a couple of years ago, there was a global push to prevent pregnancies in endemic areas. And we're not seeing the same as a recommendation with COVID-19. Right. So ACOG, for listeners, is the American College for Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is like the big U.S. organization of all the OBGYNs together. Years ago during Zika, there was so much concern of how Zika affected the developing embryo and potential for microcephaly and other problems with the newborns that there was a lot of issue of what to do if someone's trying to get pregnant in an endemic area. And as far as we can tell, that's not the same concern for this virus, for COVID-19. Do you believe that's also the case, not just for fertility, but developing embryos? I know that we sort of see them a little bit later in pregnancy than you do. We have not seen any direct concern for the fetus or the, you know, the newborn as well. Speaking with preliminary and reviewing preliminary data from China and from Italy and Spain, I'm really hopeful that while devastating, COVID-19 will not have a significant effect on the eggs, the embryo, or the sperm. And so getting into the decision to halt new IVF cycles, who makes that decision? Like, who is it that made that? You said the ASRM. So who is the ASRM and how do they make that decision? And, you know, what kind of authority do they have in, in making that? So the American Society of Reproductive Medicine is our governing organization. And sometimes they come out with committee opinions and sometimes they come out with guidelines. In this case, about four weeks ago, they came out with some guidance and they suggested that so much is unknown, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much of a burden anticipated onto our healthcare system that it's time to take a pause and stop delivering fertility treatments to patients. And they were pretty strict in their initial statement. They said no egg retrievals, no embryo transfers, stop even if the patient's been stimulated, no inseminations. ASRM was practical and pragmatic, but dogmatic in their initial statement. About two weeks later, they came back and they said, you know what? We recognize that infertility is not an elective disease. It is actually one that requires active management. We recognize that some procedures are time sensitive, like doing an egg retrieval in a woman who's about to get chemotherapy. We recognize that we can't tell programs to stop treating, but we can start developing practical guidelines to how to safely treat patients. So we're gently seeing an easing of some of the uh, real strict guidance that they gave us in their initial statement. And was the reasoning behind it because they were worried about uncertainty involving the success rate or the safety of it, you know, for the embryos of the infection? Or was it more so because in order to do this, you need a lot of people in the same place at the same time? And it was more related to social distancing. What Do you know what the, the reasoning was? It was the burden on the local health care system. It was felt that the healthcare system didn't have the capacity to take care of the impending surge of sick patients. And until we flatten the curve, 
or we improved the capacity that it didn't make sense to perform what they were calling elective procedures. So there's a scarcity of personal protective equipment. There is a scarcity of ventilators. There were patients coming into the emergency room for mild hyperstimulation or possible ectopic pregnancies that could potentially catch this horrible virus. So it was as a societal protective measure that ASRM gave their guidance that we just need to pause and really consider what would be a safe, what would be the guidelines for a safe return to care. And at the time, was there a lot of discussion about the ethics of that decision? There was a lot of conversation around the autonomy of doctors and their ability to take care of the patients in front of them, the autonomy of patients in making a self-guided decision on what risk they're willing to take. And this concept in ethics of non-beneficence, of really not wanting to do harm, but that extended to our, not just the patient, but to our staff, to ourselves, to our colleagues, and to the healthcare community, because we did not want to take equipment that might be needed elsewhere. This pushed bioethics to a whole other level. This is obviously complicated, you know, ethical considerations. And, you know, I don't claim to know the answer to any of this, obviously. It would be odd. I think people would have had a difficult time if the government came out and told, you know, either everybody in New York or everybody in the country, stop trying to have kids for the month. Either stop having sex or use protection. No one should get pregnant in the next month. I think people would have a very difficult time. The authoritarian nature of that kind of recommendation and would have fought that very hard. Yeah, you're hitting it on the head. The ASRM came out and said that fertility treatment, a lot of which is elective and non-urgent, can be paused. And then a lot of the governors, like Governor Cuomo in New York, came out shortly thereafter and said, hey, wait a second, fertility and reproductive treatment is essential. So when I said everybody should stay at home, I didn't mean people that work in liquor stores. I didn't mean people that work in grocery stores. I didn't mean a driver that needs to take essential workers to to work. And I certainly didn't mean obstetricians, gynecologists, and reproductive endocrinologists because there's reproductive needs that need to to be met. So it's really been a very complicated discourse that's been had between the local regulators on the state level, the federal guidance that we're getting, and the societal guidance from ASRM. And we're just trying to be there for our patients, paying attention to all the data, but take care of the person in front of us. Right. And I think the push and pull on this is really, how do you consider someone who's coming for fertility treatments? Is it someone who is undergoing, you know, quote unquote, an elective procedure to, you know, to get pregnant? Or is this just someone who is exercising her reproductive rights, so to speak, and we're just the facilitator for that? And I know this argument came up, or maybe this concept came up a lot in the 80s in terms of reproductive care for women who are HIV positive, right? Because at the time, HIV you know, being HIV positive was maybe more concerning than it is now because the medications weren't necessarily as effective. And so there was a big debate about whether we should or should not be assisting these women in getting pregnant because there was a potential they would pass it on to their newborns. And part of the overarching principle that when we talk about bioethics is social justice and not making these decisions on an arbitrary level, potentially marginalizing a certain group, potentially discriminating against a certain group, but really being thoughtful. And I think that that was one of the things that we face as reproductive endocrinologists. We had ACOG telling a couple that easily can get pregnant, go ahead and get pregnant, 
But then we felt like an infertile couple that had been struggling for five years and the woman's turning 40 and everything's failed. They're all saved up and set up for their IVF center. And now they're being told that they can't get pregnant. They're actually being doubly penalized for being infertile. And we needed a voice. And Resolve is the patient advocacy organization. And they came out pretty strongly. They're like, our patients need a voice. This is past the era where an organization can make decisions for individuals. We need the patient voice, the doctor voice, the local healthcare authorities voice, and we need the society to then put these opinions together with epidemiologists, with public health officials, with virologists to make individual decision-making more clear, to give guidance on how to make that individual patient journey uh, smoother and not necessarily to throw up roadblocks in reproductive care. Right. And that's really what we've been doing, like you said, with HIV. So at least most of us at the time who were in training and sort of involved with this thought it was inappropriate to tell women with HIV, you can't have fertility treatments. But on the other hand, it should be individualized because there's obviously someone with HIV who maybe were very sick and it might not be safe for them to get pregnant. And that probably wouldn't be responsible. But on the other hand, there's probably women who are excellent candidates to get pregnant. And that's a decision that has to be made, like you said, between the doctor and the patient herself and not by someone else sort of as an overarching decision, which is usually a problem. And that's where we need data. I mean, with HIV, we have viral load as a marker for helping us figure out who might be infectious and when is the right time to get pregnant. And I think that we're entering an era soon with coronavirus that we're going to have both nucleic acid testing. So we'll figure out who is potentially shedding the disease and at risk of being a spreader of the disease in offices on their way to work or even during pregnancy, and who might be immune to the disease and might be a better candidate both to come in and get pregnant and or to be a patient-facing healthcare provider in taking care of patients. So if we have precise testing, we may soon be able to get back to the business of helping patients achieve their reproductive goals. You know, you've been, and obviously your colleagues and all of us have been you know, fighting for years for government and insurers to recognize that fertility treatments are essential care and they should be covered in healthcare plans and whatnot. Do you think that this decision will have any impact on those efforts in either direction? I think that we've raised this conversation to the forefront. The word elective has to be no longer used in our field. The word essential, I think, has to apply to infertility. It's a disease. It's a disability. It's a stigma. It's a source of human suffering, and the World Health Organization has even recognized that this is a disease that needs to be treated. So New York State been the most recent state to have issued a mandate for the coverage of infertility for patients who are employed by large employers, and that's going to go many steps forward in providing access to care for formerly uninsured patients, and I think that that's the right direction. And I think it's possible that this whole experience in a microcosm is also reflective of sort of the macro level, meaning when this first happened, I think there was a step back by saying that, you know, everything has to be halted, this is elective, you can't do any cycles. But then everyone collectively sort of rethought that. And then, like you said, took two steps forward and saying, no, no, that's really not the best decision. We have to be allowing this and do it on a case-by-case basis when it's appropriate, and which is sort of what we're trying to get at for everybody. It's time for us to not marginalize the vulnerable, but to support the vulnerable. Exactly. When this came out initially, did the news of it hit your patients from the media or did you have to like 
call all these patients and say, sorry, we have to stop? Or how did that work? It must have been, it must have been awful. It was all hands on deck. And we began to transition a lot of our workforce to a remote workforce. And we had a lot of tough conversations with patients. And ultimately, we're putting their health care first. We're putting our staff first. There was a lot of uncertainty. And fortunately, as a society, we flattened the curve. The initial projections of tens of thousands of deaths of deaths and intensive care unit admissions, we were bad in New York. And a lot of people got sick. And we've all lost colleagues. But fortunately, we've taken steps towards flattening the curve. And we have not exceeded our healthcare system's capacity. And I believe we're heading towards a time where it's going to be safer. It's going to be okay to get back to treatment. But we're going to change how we deliver treatment. Based on the sort of change from the ASRM and time passing, have you resumed uh, cycles now? Are you planning to? Or where are you in that process? We are just getting started, and we're looking forward to, in May, resuming egg retrievals and embryo transfers with social distancing or physical distancing in our waiting room, with different disinfectant policies in place, with telemedicine whenever possible, with surveys and temperature checks of our staff and our patients before and when they check in. We've changed the way we're practicing medicine but we're actually believing that it's time to start taking care of patients again. That's fantastic. And do you expect there to be a big backlog for patients, or do you think it's going to work out from a volume perspective? I think that we're going to see a slow return to normal as a society. I don't think anybody's going into a crowded bar soon. I don't think that crowded restaurants, movie theaters, Broadway shows, travel. It's going to be a while before we all feel safe again. And I think that people are going to slowly go back to prioritizing their life's goals. And one of them is going to be fertility. But I don't expect there to be a massive surge on May 1st. I'd expect that over the next three months, we'll have a return to normal. That makes sense. And now also one of the hats that you wear is you're in charge of training fellows and training other people to do reproductive endocrinology and infertility. How did this affect your training program? We went to all virtual lectures. We went to virtual research meetings. And our fellows have been deployed to help out on the labor floor during surge situations where all hands on deck were needed. They have been loyal participants in our healthcare system, but we've found new and innovative ways to still do research, to do science. We've all adapted to this crazy new reality that we're facing. They're continued to be determined to learn and to share knowledge and graduate as fully trained reproductive endocrinologists. So this is forced change in all of us, but I don't think that their their training will be affected. Yeah. And I think this experience has taught us, I mean, so many lessons, you know, in terms of life and in terms of expectations and in terms of priorities. And I think from, you know, reproductive health perspective, I think that this struggle that the entire country had over what to do in this situation really taught us a lot of lessons. And I think, like you said, it sort of brought back to the forefront this idea about uh, reproduction and fertility as essential and part of healthcare and not something that's, you know, elective or a luxury or something like that. And I think that ultimately we're going to come out of this better as a society because we got to really rethink that decision that we had to make. And I think that that's really important and one of the great lessons we're going to take from this. I think that you're right. This is a real focus on core values. 
we're all staying closer and closer to our families, to our loved ones. We're showing, I think, compassion for those that are sick in our com community. We're being respectful of personal space in the outside world. And we're hopefully going to be able to refocus on our priorities. And that for many includes building their family or creating the security of having a family in the future. And I'd like to see some good come out of this horrible situation. I'd agree with you, Nadine. I obviously wish you the best personally in your own health and your family and Army of New York. Obviously, I've, I've known you a long time. I know your colleagues a long time. We're all very close personally and professionally. We obviously have a lot of patients who go back and forth. And of course, most importantly, the women and the families who come to you and rely on you to help them build their own families and how important that care is and how you and your team do it with obviously such expertise and with such care and such thoughtfulness and also passion and advocacy for their rights. And I think that all of us, as you said, are reconsidering our core values and reaffirming them. And I just wish you all the best of luck in, in helping these your patients build their families up. Thank you, Nady. As, as a friend and as a colleague, it's just always a privilege to work with you. And thanks for allowing me to participate on your podcast. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.